Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Today's guest helping us plumb the depths of the question of McCarthy and faith is Brian Vessio. Brian's currently professor and chair of English at High Point University in North Carolina. He has previously taught at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Missouri Southern State University, and DePaul University. He's the author of the 2014 book, Reconstruction Literary Studies, an informalist approach, as well as numerous articles on American authors, including Mark Twain, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, and Nathaniel West. He's published articles on works by McCarthy, including Sutri, Blood Meridian, and The Road. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So why don't we start with the question I've asked most of the, the guests on here. How did you come to discover Cormac McCarthy? Well, that's a that's an interesting question in my case because it's it's sort of a a strange story. I um, I discovered McCarthy actually in graduate school um, when I was at the University of Virginia when I was in the middle of writing my dissertation. It's a little odd that I hadn't discovered him before then, but I had not. Um, I didn't read a lot of contemporary literature back then. My dissertation was on modernism in the American novel, and so I was reading mostly American novels from the 1930s and 40s. My argument in my dissertation was basically that modernism in the American novel has a lot more to do with continuity with 19th century American writers like Melville and Hawthorne and Twain and Henry James than it does with the poetry and poetics of T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and what we call the high modernists. So one of my readers from my dissertation, and this would have been in the mid-90s, one of my readers from my dissertation was the late philosopher, late pragmatist philosopher, Richard Rorty. And he, having read, I think, my chapter on Faulkner, he, um, he came to me and asked me if I had read anything by Cormac McCarthy. And at the time, in the mid-90s, McCarthy's latest publication was All the Pretty Horses. So he recommended All the Pretty Horses to me. And I read it. And not surprisingly, I found a contemporary author who had the same sort of predilection for those 19th century American writers and seemed also to me to have a lot more to do with the 19th century American novel than with 20th century poetics and with modernism, postmodernism, anything going on in the 20th century. And so I was hooked. And I've, I've been reading McCarthy ever since. I think that's an excellent point. And I guess we've made it a little bit on the podcast before because we had Steve Fry on to talk about Melville and McCarthy. But there really is this kind of skipping of tradition. Or, and I don't mean like skipping people here and skipping people there, but like a rock skipping along a pond surface where we, you know, we hit down with with Melville and then over to Faulkner and into McCarthy in a lineage where so many writers in between are not really, I think, part of that tradition to him. I think it's a, a, a few generations there to degrees of separation. There's not much between Melville to McCarthy. No, not at all. Uh, you know, obviously the primary figure who lies between the two of them is Faulkner. And that's the, the writer McCarthy is most often probably compared to, um, but certainly, it seems to me, McCarthy has a lot more in common with 
Melville particularly, but also Hawthorne and Twain and James than he does with contemporaries of his, like, say, Toni Morrison or Don DeLillo. Um, right. He disparages James and says, what sure. does he say? His writing is very strange to me. It's not literature, is what he said. <laughs> it's not literature. Uh, what do you think he means by that? I know this is not a James and McCarthy episode, but what do you think? Well, what he says about it, actually, is that he says literature ought to deal with matters of life and death. And mm. James novels very rarely do deal with matters of life and death. I mean, people die, you know, there's the wings of the dove, and but it's mostly about social social graces. And right. James novels are very serious and sophisticated novels of manners. Right. And McCarthy doesn't want to have much to do with novels of manners. And so what I, what I think I mean by putting him in that tradition and including Henry James in that tradition is that I'm often very fond of uh, Edmund Wilson's uh, description of contemporary writing in his day in the 1930s in Axel's Castle as a fusion of naturalism and symbolism. Mm. And I think Henry James is almost as much a fusion of those two things as are Melville and Hawthorne. Right. I think McCarthy is a fusion of those two things too. I, when Steve Fry talks about McCarthy's relationship to the naturalist movement, that seems to me exactly right. I think McCarthy is a, a latter-day naturalist, but I would go a little further and say he's a latter-day naturalist slash symbolist. Um, tradition of the 19th century authors. Right. And because when we think of the modernist writers, that as much as they may be influenced by what naturalism has done right before them, they are so based on things like elision, leaving out things and asking you to put the pieces together based on literary symbolism. They're so interested in breakdowns in communication and and again, leaving the really the reader to paint in a lot of the, the missing places. And that, that really is coming out of James, whether Hemingway and McCarthy want to admit it or not. Um, so I think you're right. I think there is a lot of Henry James showing up in modernism and maybe it's so buried into the landscape by that point, they don't realize it necessarily. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think, um, uh, you know, like any other author, McCarthy has unconscious in influences too. And, uh, I think there are a lot of authors in his lineage that he is either not aware of or not focused on, but nevertheless, that, that affect his work. So steering us back into the main question I, I had for you, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. In, in our discussion of faith, there is a way to kind of dial it down to the micro level and then a way to kind of broaden it to the macro level and maybe say it's not only about Christian faith, but faith in general. And for the, and for the purposes of our conversation, when we think of it, the micro level, we're really thinking about the entire culture of what McCarthy as a, someone of Irish descent raised uh, a little bit in Rhode Island, but largely in Knoxville, Tennessee, as a practicing Catholic, as a young man, it's entirely what his culture would be. His entire culture is going to be based around that identity to a degree in a way that, say, many other people practicing faith in the United States are not utterly defined by that culture. On the other hand, at the macro level, when we're talking about faith, that's a little more our purpose today, wouldn't you say, where we're headed with it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think whatever the, the details of McCarthy's, the, the faith of McCarthy's youth and their lasting impact. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that 
he still sees things to this day through a, a basically Catholic framework. Right. I think the questions he's really interested in are not sort of micro doctrinal questions, but I think it's the macro question of, well, it's the question Oprah put to him in the famous Oprah interview, <laughs> the God thing. I right. think that's really the question. I think that's the question that is probably most central to McCarthy's works, or at least it's it's become most visible to McCar- in McCarthy's works as his his career has progressed. What do we know of his upbringing when it comes to faith? I guess I gave a little bit of a spoiler in the previous question, but what do we know about it? Yeah, all the evidence is that McCarthy was a practicing Catholic and a, a full-fledged believer as a child. He went to Catholic school. Um, he had, you know, obviously we don't know as much as we would like to know about McCarthy's upbringing and about his childhood. Um, but um, there's no evidence to suggest that he was not truly and sincerely devout as a child. I don't think that one can read his later works and think of him as having such a straightforward relationship to his faith. I think that's what we want to talk more about today. But my guess is, based on what we know, that he had a fairly straightforward Catholic upbringing. Do you think an understanding of his worldview is particularly different depending which novel we read? Yeah. I mean, I do think his views on religious faith have probably stayed fairly constant throughout his writing career, but his focus has changed over time. Mm. His focus has shifted over time. I think in his early Appalachian works, he's much more concerned with the, the sort of humanity's relationship to nature and how that sure. um, overlaps with questions of, of religious faith. I really see a lot of um, wrestling with sort of Emersonian ideas in right. early McCarthy and his Appalachian works. And I think in his later works, beginning really, Sutri seems like the breaking point as it is of so many things in McCarthy. He seems much more interested in the sort of personal struggle with faith and that becomes magnified in his later works and certainly in the last fictional works he's published to date, right. both in 2006, The Road and uh, Sunset Limited. And in both of those works, I think the, the God thing, the question that Oprah puts to him, is really front and center and is, is really the heart of his work. It's almost like he discovered in the course of his career that that's really what he had been writing about all along and thinking about all along. You know, when I think of those, those first four novels, I, there's a certain connecting line between outer dark and Sutri in terms, I think of hypocrisy. So that where we see so many elements of hypocrisy and then the grim triune is a horrible inversion of a, of a Trinity in a way that is then created in a very different way. When we finally get to the road, uh, and then in Sutri, of course, we have the different people comparing different aspects of faith to each other and, and kind of judging each other based on those things. And we see Sutri as someone who seems to have fallen pretty far away from the church he'd been raised in. And so we have that great scene where he goes back to visit and and doesn't really feel comfortable there in his own skin anymore. It reminds you of the scene in The Sun Also Rises when Jake Barnes is trying to get Brett Ashley to go into church and pray with him. And she says, I'm not, I'm no good for religion. I've got the wrong sort of face for that kind of thing. Yeah. So we, we get a little bit of that with Sutri. That's exactly Sutri. Yeah. 
and then later, of course, when we get to Blood Meridian, we, we have the ex-priest, we have the judge, we have the kid, where it's hard to see any kind of faith at work with these people. Do, do you see him just heading in a very different direction when we get to Blood Meridian? I think, like I said, I think, uh, and, and actually you mentioned hypocrisy, and I think that's worth dwelling on a little bit, because I also think of Child of God in that context, too, when yes, books. And I do think the concerns with faith in the early works maybe have more to do with the social, is one way to put mm. it. And the concerns with faith, in, beginning with Blood Meridian and in later works, are more about not just the personal, but the metaphysical. Uh, I, think, mm. I think he's much more concerned with metaphysics um, in his later works. One, one theory I've always had about that is that I wonder if in his, once he gets to his sort of Southwestern novels, um, he also at that, around that same time is when he starts really discovering his scientific interests and particularly right. his interests in complexity science. And I wonder if the coincidence of those two things didn't shift, shift his focus a little bit to, to the metaphysical and the sort of larger huh. cosmological questions that he was less concerned with when he's back at the green fly Inn, you know, or, or in, in child of God, or even in outer dark. And those, those questions, those metaphysical questions are always there. Right. But I think they become the center stage once we get to the Southwestern novels. And it's interesting because when you think of naturalism, it stands at the exact opposite end of the spectrum from metaphysical naturalism is all about, you know, the application of scientific determinism to literature. So what's your heredity, what's your natural environment and social environment and how are you, how's all that going to work together to help you deal with, with chance and random things which occur and how much of who you are, who you'll be is completely prescribed by again, the, your social environment, your heredity, all that, you know, Emil Zola an experimental novel, I guess is where we really see the germination of, of this movement. And then with the metaphysical, of course, is questioning that and questioning how much it is just those things. How much of it is it? There's something more. What does it all mean? You know, the squirrel knows what it means. It means get a nut or you'll go hungry. And the horse knows what it means. But, but we humans want to question and ask and, and seek, I guess. And I really think the point where McCarthy really has to think about metaphysics is morality. I think morality is really leads him to his struggle with religious faith, because a good word for what you were describing, the, the world naturalism presents us with, the world of, you know, determinism and, and, and things beyond our control. A good word for that is the word my, my teacher Richard Rorty used all the time for it, which is contingency. Um, naturalism ah. places us in a world that is governed by contingency. And it seems to me one way to put the big question that hovers over all McCarthy's works is how is morality possible in a world governed by contingency? I think that's what leads him to questions of religious faith. Hmm. And of course, it's very hard to read the road and not see that struggle on page after page after page. And there, of course, we have the benefit of having a very strong-willed protagonist who represents a point of view at odds with that world of contingency as opposed to blood meridian where i'm not i've still to, as many times i've read it i can't really completely tell you 
who the judge is or what he represents, where he's a, you know, I've published things about him as a trickster, Lucifer, Prometheus figure. And I know those things don't necessarily all go together. And Rick Wallach has published things about him as, as a kind of a representative of the archons in a purely ancient Gnostic way of looking at it. And some could say he's just simply the devil or a devil, but it's, it's just really hard to see how that whole thing lands on all of it. I think the judge is actually a really good uh, point for thinking about um, McCarthy's struggle with religious faith, because, you know, like, like his great precursor, I think Moby Dick as a symbol, the judge is so multifaceted and has so many different interpretations. And, you know, McCarthy says himself about the judge in Blood Meridian that he just can't be reduced. You know, he can't be reduced to the atavistic egg of his origins. And right. he, he, there's nothing we can do to, um, to us. He's, he's literally unassimilable, right. but we all assimilate him nevertheless in our own ways. Yeah. And I do think that that's, um, that has something to do with McCarthy's own ambivalence and equivocal attitude perhaps toward religious faith. I mean, I, getting back to the Oprah interview and her question about the God thing, usually whenever people deal with McCarthy's answer to that question, which is simply, it depends on the day you ask me, right? When you right. Ask, uh, have you figured out the God thing? He says, it depends on the day you ask me. Most people have regarded his answer to that question as either evasive or coy or somehow not sincere. I honestly think that we ought to take him at his word. I, I really do mm. believe that McCarthy has, I think he, he vacillates in his attitude toward religious faith and his attitude toward that question I, I posed earlier, is morality possible in a world right. by contingency? You know, I think that many times McCarthy wants to, wants to say that morality is not possible without something beyond time and chance to underwrite moral certainties. Um, but at other times, he seems to want to say that maybe in this world that is governed by contingency, maybe humanity is enough. And maybe humanity has the resources to, to build morality all by itself. And, and I do think he, he alternates between those two attitudes in his work. And I, I think the judge's ambi ambiguity is, is a sort of sign of that uncertainty on McCarthy's part. A lot of times in literature, when someone is shown to particularly not have faith, and we're back to the use of heavy symbolism by different writers, it's often a shorthand. Their lack of religious faith is showing a, a lack of faith in general, a lack of hope, a lack of ability to hold out for something better. And so as a, as a kind of synecdoche where our authors will use the fact that someone can't go to church anymore, doesn't believe in anything anymore. As, as something much more profound than simply this one person's failure regarding religious faith. So do you see that operating a little bit in, these, in, in McCarthy's kind of back and forth too? Is it standing for something even larger when there are these 
these faith questions? Just, I mean, let me, let me rephrase. That was very poorly worded. Is it basically the seeking out answers of metaphysics, a way of showing that you have to find something out there? Do you have to look for more than what you see? I think that's true of McCarthy. I don't, I think, I think McCarthy, I think McCarthy's experience of the world is the experience of a world that has fallen and that is mm. contingent all the way down. And I think he has trouble imagining morality existing in a world like that. And yet, and, and this might be a controversial statement about McCarthy, I think he's fundamentally a moralist. I think McCarthy mm. is fundamentally concerned that we find some concept of the good some way of holding on to the good in a world that doesn't seem to have any of it in it. And so I do think, I think, again, I think his, his metaphysical questing is really a questing for, for the good uh, and for some spark, some notion of the good in the world. If I were someone enlightened enough and old enough to read him, just as all the novels came out and you asked me that or told me that in 1987, a year or two after Blood and Brady came out, I would have said, I, I don't know, Brian, I just don't see it. But then we get through the Border Trilogy and we get to that remarkable epilogue or coda at the end of the Border Trilogy in the sequence where the aged Billy Parham, and people always forget that scene is set a decade or so in the future from where the, when the novel actually came out. So it's a little interesting in that way. Um, and he's under an overpass and there's a man sitting across from him and they have this very interesting discussion where the man, just like from the crossing relates to him, a dream and the things happen in a dream where someone is going to be sacrificed. And there's that final line of, will you stand for him? That man would, every man must stand for another a repudiation, a whole idea of I'm not supposed to be my brother's keeper. And then it seems to say, well, yes, you are. And if you ask me that same question, post the border trilogy and especially that ending sequence of cities of the plane, I think I'd very much more see it the way you've stated it. I, I don't know if it's a case where he's always been seeking for it. He's more comfortable addressing it out loud or he's his point of view has evolved in, in ways. I'm not sure. Well, I do think that the conflict between the judge and the kid at the end of blood Meridian sets the stage for this this hunger to reconstruct goodness in the world in some way or other for McCarthy. And in some ways, I think that that's why he wrote the border trilogy. The border trilogy is almost a rewriting of blood Meridian from the point of view of not trying to, you know, level the ground, but right. trying to rebuild uh, a sense of right. goodness in the world and a sense of community in the world. But, and I think, you know, as many people have pointed out, the kid is a really poor example of a figure, you know, is very poor avatar of morality, if that's what you're looking right. for in the novel. Nevertheless, I think that that's sort of what McCarthy has in mind at the end of that novel with the kid is that, you know, when the, when the judge talks of the flaw in his heart, you know, the flawed place in his heart, I think from McCarthy's point of view, that flawed place is the thing that might be potentially redemptive. You know, there's there's right. a, a potential spot of goodness and redemption in him. And I do think that that is the, that's what McCarthy is mining for is that flawed place in the heart in the border trilogy. And there's obviously a direct line between 
that and the the carrying of the fire in in the road right right when people have written about McCarthy's thoughts on faith uh, previously one of the things the the two books where it probably shows up pre the road which of course is so replete with various Christological symbols that it's hard to, you can't avoid it to really talk about the novel thoroughly but with the with both Outer Dark and Blood Meridian, there's been a lot written on Gnosticism. What are your thoughts on, we, we started to bring it up a little earlier, just what in general are your thoughts on Gnosticism and how it appears to all these? It's very hard to read Leo Doherty's or Rick's um, discussion of Blood Meridian and not see quite clearly that McCarthy has Gnosticism in mind in that novel, right. particularly. It's very hard to see, you know, when the judge calls himself a suzerain. Rick's interpretation of the judge as an archon, a Gnostic archon, is, is, is hard to avoid. It's very hard to avoid. That book has as much of the sort of language and the trappings of Gnosticism as the road has of, of Christological symbolism and so forth. Right. But I, I'm a little hesitant to call McCarthy a sort of committed Gnostic. Right. And part of the reason I'm I'm a little hesitant about that is, you know, Harold Bloom, uh, the critic and great admirer of of McCarthy, s- seems to find Gnosticism almost everywhere in American literature. <laughs> but it, he says somewhere, and I can't remember if it's in his interview with uh, Peter Josephs or maybe um, How to Read and Why in his discussion of Blood Meridian there. But somewhere, Harold Bloom actually sort of tries to distance McCarthy from Gnosticism and says. Right. You know, McCarthy is not really a Gnostic. He, you know, he toys with the idea, he entertains the idea of Gnosticism. I think it's probably true that I think the best way to describe McCarthy's relationship to Gnosticism is that he entertains it. He entertains the ideas of Gnosticism. And I've started to think that one of the reasons he entertains the idea of Gnosticism is that when I say that McCarthy is most interested in morality and recovering morality, I think it's because the the theological problem that most obsesses him is the problem of theodicy, the problem of evil right. in the world. How does evil right. exist in the world? What you know? How do we make sense of evil in the world? Right. If we have an absolutely good God who's created all creation, and how can he allow evil to exist? Exactly. Exactly. Now, the Christ, the traditional Christian solution to that problem is to introduce the idea of free will. Right. That right. traditional sort of Aquinas solution to the problem of theodicy is we introduce the idea of free will. I think McCarthy, the naturalist, doesn't want to do that. Okay. I don't think McCarthy, the naturalist, wants to um, embrace free will to get us out of the problem of theodicy. And it's because of his naturalism and his commitments to naturalism. And so I think Gnosticism and other associated forms of mysticism from McCarthy actually take another tack toward getting us out of the problem of theodicy, which is namely to deny the omnipotence of God. Hmm. Gnosticism leaves us in a world where God has fairly abandoned his create, largely abandoned right. his creation and the archons are in control. Right. And I think that's McCarthy's probably preferred solution to um, the problem of theodicy rather than the, the topic of free will. It is interesting that 
the topic of free will comes up here and there in McCarthy. And the question of free will does come up, particularly in No Country for Old Men. I mean, that's where, where it's really, and the references to the blind coiner at the end of uh, All the Pretty Horses and in the Border Trilogy a bit too. But it's it's really almost striking how little McCarthy cares about the, the question of free will relative to the question of the evil in the world. And I think Gnosticism gives him an opportunity to suggest the problem of evil in the world has less to do with free will than it has to do with um, the fact that God might not always be in control of his creation. Or, or at least if not in control, he's not always invested. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's at a remove. Yeah, there's a distant, there's a sense of a distant God in, in McCarthy. Right. The, to the extent that there is God in McCarthy, it is, he is a distant God. Well, and you remember the rag picker in Sutri says, I always believed there was one. I just was never was sure I'd, I'd like him if I met him. Or, uh, he says a little differently in that. And I think there's probably room there that McCarthy can use the trappings of Gnosticism as a kind of framework to build the novel around without necessarily being heavily invested in Gnosticism as a personal worldview or philosophy as well. So much in the way that Joyce uses a framework of Ulysses, you know, of the Odyssey for his story of a man wandering around Dublin for a day, wondering if his wife's cheating on him. It doesn't mean that Joyce thinks everyone should be reading the classics in Greek and defining all modern life by it. It means he used that framework for that one book. Although it may also be that it, at that point in his life, it really suited McCarthy's view and what he sees is by the time he writes to road is he sees it a little differently. Well, and that would be consistent with what I, what I've suggested about McCarthy sort of vacillating, you know, it, it right. might be that as a seeker, there was a, a phase McCarthy had a Gnostic phase and it's almost in, in the same way that one could argue he had his Roman Catholic phase as a child, as a young man. And, and both of those sets of symbols continue to, um, influence his work and continue to inform his thinking about faith, even if he's not really that invested in their details. Right. They they accrue rather than shift. So instead of like taking one set of lenses out of your your glass frames and adding a new lenses in, you just keep putting new ones in front of them. Uh, like when you go to the optometrist and they keep clicking new new lenses in to see what your prescription is. One of the things that occurred to me when you're talking about the seeking is if we look at the end of the orchard keeper, the boy is come back, see his mother's grave, but he's leaving. He's on a voyage. The outer dark, uh, Renthe and Culla are wandering on a quest the entire time until it's horrific ends. In Child of God, not so much, but in such it ends with the titular character leaving to go somewhere all the pretty horses is about movement and travel crossing borders crossing boundaries the crossing is about repeated crossing of borders and boundaries and seeking and traveling cities of the plain ends with wandering and wandering and wandering until billy finally finds a home and we jump ahead then again of course to the road which is all about a, a quest narr- and we know he originally wanted to call it the grail so the idea of questing in a narrative there a road narrative is built into that novel from the start. And even 
Sunset Limited, the, the way the one man wants to commit suicide is in front of a subway train. Of all the many ways we can do away with ourselves, he chooses the one that's about transit and movement. So do you see that as an elaborate, long metaphor for this idea of seeking, uh, of seeking and searching and, and looking for answers? Or Absolutely. All McCarthy's narratives are quest narratives of some sort. And I would argue, although you mentioned, you know, uh, the crossing and some sort of ambiguous places, even the road, the ending of the road is ambiguous, whether or not um, the boy has finally found a home and has finally found um, the grail that he was seeking. I would argue that um, all the quests in McCarthy are really at best ambiguously conclusive, but um, mostly inconclusive. And I think right. that that is emblematic of his own sort of faith quest. Um, I don't think he's done with the God question yet. No. Um, and then that's why all of us, of course, are waiting for the passenger, among other things, is, uh, is to see where that quest goes next. His brother, who is just a thoroughly generous, nice human being, that, and I very much enjoyed talking to him, was on the podcast. And, oh, it took every bit of strength I had not to ask him about the passenger, but I was determined not to because I know that's one of the things that he's probably sick of hearing. And so I thought, well, I'll show some good manners for once in my life. But I did, I did hold off. Do you think, Brian, that the way we read earlier McCarthy is colored by how we read The Road? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't help but but reread all of his novels in that light. And I think, as I said, I think what it does, what The Road does to all his previous works is it does put these metaphysical questions about the existence of God, religious faith, front and center in works that, you know, we might not have seen them in before. Right. When McCarthy, you know, his early Appalachian works, he was he was read as a Southern writer, as a writer of about region and local color and read for his sort of realistic depictions of the world. Sutri is often read as a sort of realistic chronicle of life in Knoxville um, in, in that era. I think that the symbolic dimension of all of that is revealed by the road. In some ways, you know, you just mentioned that all of McCarthy's works seem to have travel and questing and roads in them. In some ways, the road, which is so invested in stripping everything down right. <laughs> to the ultimate essences of things, in some way, the road is a sort of stripping down of all the essences of, of, of the essence of all of McCarthy's mm. work to this point. It is, it is the same road that all of his characters have been traveling in one way or another in all, all of the works that we've read by him. And so I think it, thinking about the road, thinking about the rest of the novels through the road, restores the symbolic dimension of them that we sometimes ignore mm. it, it makes good on that on on that claim i made earlier that mccarthy is a naturalist fused with a symbolist and and i think the road makes that clearer as does sunset limited yeah and, and sunset limited is probably his most straightforward open-eyed you know here's here's what i'm talking about kind of discussion about faith uh do you want to uh, can you tell us a little bit about sunset limited just what you think about it yeah i think sunset limited is a is a let me say from from my taste sunset limited is a very important work it's not necessarily the best work by mccarthy and one of the reasons i think its dramatic limitations are its 
sort of, um, how shall I put it, exegetical strengths. Okay. Um, because it is entirely a dialogue. Right. Many people have observed, even watching the HBO film with uh, the Tommy Lee Jones, Samuel Jackson version of the film, that it it suffers from certain dramatic limitations right. because it is essentially just a dialogue. So you don't, when you say dramatic limitations, you don't mean dramatic in the one sense of the adjective, which is bum, bum, bum type limitations you mean because it's a form of drama. I, I mean, aesthetic limits as a dramatic word. Right. It has certain aesthetic defects as a dramatic. That's what I mean. However, it makes for an outstanding gloss on the road. Yes. And therefore, it seems to me on most of everything else that McCarthy, I think that's the way Sunset Limited is best read, is as a, is a gloss on the road and pretty much everything else McCarthy has read or has written. It is sort of an overt statement of what is motivating McCarthy's work mm. in the road. So that dialogue is the dialogue that it seems to me is going on inside McCarthy throughout his novels, throughout his works. I, I just had a discussion the other day with Marty Priola, who, you know, founded the, the website and is a avid collector of McCarthy and a longtime member of the society. And he was saying how, when you watch that play, and he's one of the people who went and saw the first time it was put on out West and, no, excuse me, Chicago, Steppenwolf Theater. Um, and he said, your view of who won the debate was completely based on what your thoughts were on faith before you ever went into the debate. And that both sides make their case pretty compellingly. That's a great way to put it. I think, you know, the prevailing critical opinion seems to me that Black wins the debate mm. and that McCarthy is on Black's side, ultimately. And I've had <laughs> I've had that conversation with many people and I, 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 I am reluctant to reach that same conclusion because there's a, an obvious practical sense in which he has lost the debate. Right. The obvious practical sense is that he has not convinced White not to commit suicide. He's failed in his primary argument, which is to convince White to, to not to commit suicide. But also I think, again, I think the equivocation about religious faith is genuine mm. in McCarthy and it's real. I don't think he's, I don't think he simply sets up White as a straw man. I think many of the things that White says are things that McCarthy believes very strongly as well. My favorite quotation in that, in that play, I'll, uh, actually one that I, I often use for, I use in my classes these days, is when White says, um, um, that's what an education is. It makes everything personal. Right. It makes the world it makes the world personal is how he puts it. And I think that's a deeply held conviction of McCarthy's himself. And I think a lot of the things that White says are deeply held convictions of McCarthy. And I think he would also at the same time desperately like to believe what Black believes and and hopes that hopes that Black wins that argument. But he's not sure he wins even inside himself. Because it all depends what day it is. It all depends on what day it is. Yes. I think we've we've covered that pretty well, and I think I, there are a lot of questions I want to ask you, but they're hard for me to formulate off the top of my head, so they might have to wait until the next time we can be at a McCarthy conference together and get over into a corner somewhere. But let me ask you, Brian, if I could, what I ask all the guests that have come on the podcast, which is, what's your favorite work by McCarthy and why? Well, I wish I had uh, an iconoclastic 
answer to this question and I wish I could be a contrarian, but I can't Um, because there is no doubt in my mind that Blood Meridian is his best novel. It is the one, and and I think I, I gave you the reason earlier when I said Judge Holden, who is at the heart of that novel, is simply unassimilable. Yeah. Um, he contains multitudes that will never be plumbed. Um, and it is the most, the most original, the most startlingly original, the most lastingly disturbing of all of McCarthy's works. It's the one that um, people will be puzzling over for centuries to come. And that's why it's my favorite. I wanted, on the subject of Judge Holden too, I just wanted to quickly retreat to something else that we had talked about. There's one dimension of McCarthy's relationship to faith that we didn't quite get to, but I want to I want to go back to it. McCarthy seems drawn to to mystical forms of religious faith mm. much more than conventional or right. traditional. To the extent that he's drawn to, he's drawn to Gnosticism. He's drawn to Jakob Bohm, uh, the German mystic. He's he's drawn to to mystical forms and sort of hermetic forms of religious faith more than mainstream forms. And I think the reason for that is this, the more the disparity, the larger the disparity between your experience of the world as it is and your vision of the kingdom of heaven, your idealized vision of what the world should be, the more you're going to retreat to a more mystical Hmm. view of religion. Mainstream versions of Christianity, for example, really try to stress your personal relationship with God, God as your friend, God as part of your everyday experience in the world. And I think for McCarthy, that just doesn't ring true. Mm. I think for McCarthy, um, God is something, we mentioned God being something distant. God is something mysterious. You know, the last, Alan Josephs and others made much of the fact that the last word in the road is mystery. Right. And, and I think the reason for that is that McCarthy has a conviction that there's got to be something. Right. There's got to be something beyond time and chance that rectifies the world. But it's so distant. Whatever it is, is so distant from our experience of the world that it's hard to see how to get there other than just the sort of desperate graspings of a kind of mysticism. Mm. And I think it might be related actually to his um, his affinity for complexity science as well, because complexity science also suggests to us that there is order there. There is order there, but it's vastly different. That order is vastly divorced from our basic experience of the world, which is of a world of contingency. Right. So I think Blood Meridian more than McCarthy's other novels registers that distance. Right. Uh, and that's another reason why I like that book so much. You know, I one of the things that I think is also appearing, one of the people who's also appearing in some of these novels where he is seeking and searching, I, I think Kierkegaard's showing up as well. You know, the whole point of Kierkegaard, that's where we first see existentialism, this whole notion that the world doesn't make sense, the world is chaotic, the world is bloody, the world is awful in all these different ways. And our inability in his response as opposed to say a Gnostic response that will therefore God is distant. His response is to say, we're not searching properly for God. We're not. So the sickness unto death we feel is caused by that separation from God. And so the way to create order is to go about fulfilling your, your Christian duties. 
as such. And of course, Kierkegaard puts it in 900,000 words and much more com- complicated language than that. But I, I, I certainly do not feel McCarthy buys into that second part of it. But there are many things which appear, which seem to me to be direct references to Kierkegaard. So maybe that's something we can come back to when I, when I have you back on down the line to talk about philosophy and McCarthy. Yeah, Kierkegaard is one great, uh, one great example, and I'll just add one more. Here's another one to think about, too, is Dostoevsky. Oh, yes. Dostoevsky is everywhere in McCarthy. And actually, I think there's another American author who you know, McCarthy is so frequently compared to Faulkner. Right. But I think that the author, the American writer he needs to be compared to more is actually Flannery O'Connor. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he has been. But I think, I think Flannery O'Connor needs to become more important to thinking about McCarthy. I think that M- McCarthy is to Faulkner and Melville as he is to O'Connor and Dostoevsky. Mm. I think he, he gets his Dostoevsky through Flannery O'Connor in some ways in the same way he gets his Melville through Faulkner. And I think both of them, um, and I think it is the the sort of existentialist Christianity that you're talking about is what he gets from Dostoevsky. Um, it's almost as if, um, and this is also Jacob Bohem's philosophy too, that in order to find our way to redemption, we have to pass through a kind of living hell. And I think that's a, a, a Dostoevskyan vision and even that deeply affects O'Connor and also deeply affects McCarthy. And I'll throw you out one more writer who had just become a huge deal as an Irish Catholic Southern writer, right at the time McCarthy was starting to really embark on his career. And that's Walker Percy, who, who's a very serious uh, Southern Roman Catholic writer. Who's very heavily invested in existentialist Christianity. So all of which leads to the question for another day of, uh, McCarthy's identity as a, as Flannery O'Connor puts it, a Catholic writer in the Protestant South. And my hope is have Brian Gimps on here, who's actually got a book on that very subject. So that will be a fantastic discussion. Yes. Brian, we thank you so much for coming on the episode. Dr. Brian Vesio is currently professor and chair of English at High Point University in North Carolina. He has previously taught at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, Missouri Southern State University, and DePaul University, and is the author of the 2014 book, Reconstruction Literary Studies, An Informalist Approach, as well as numerous articles in American authors, including Mark Twain, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, and Nathaniel West, and many articles and works by Corey McCarthy, including some on Sutri, Blood Meridian, and The Road. Thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced, and music for reading McCarthy, The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts, we hope that they will follow along. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. We're very social and this may be sought out on Twitter and Facebook.